when the markets are fluctuating. When one is enough for everyone. When up is down, and up is down, and down is up, and up is down. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Tony, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ostron. And I'm Ryu. And this is the 222nd entry into our chronicle, recorded on Sunday, August 21st, and released Wednesday, August 24th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. And as we're discussing Spelljammer, Lennon is manning the doors to make sure Ostron can't escape. So you have the pleasure of my dulcet tones this evening. Why wasn't he the one who tied me to the chair? Because his sleight of hand bonus is like two. Mine, on the other hand, is 15. With advantage. So, Ryu, what's in store for our brave adventures this week? In this week's Adventurers Pack, Ostron plays with the market. Next, we check out some D&D news as we take a look at the recently released Spelljammer Adventures in Space and tell you the one thing we learned at Wizards Presents. With so much news, we're skipping the short rest segment, so after the news, we'll be heading into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our Adventurers Packs. Do you always carry this much in your bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid roll for. So usually I am responsible for trying to drain everyone's wallets uh, with various different expensive items, but this particular time I'm going to be draining characters' wallets. Uh, So in wandering about looking for resources and information to use in my games, I stumbled upon the site Marcinon Homebrew. That's M-A-R-C-I-N and then capital O-N. The page itself appears to be a pet project of a particular individual. Uh, They have a few different things on there. Mostly there are some homebrew rules that are tweaks for a few different player options, uh, subclasses and spells, as well as rule modifications to things like critical hits and new mechanics for things like getting drunk or using spell scrolls or things like that. Uh, But the thing that caught my eye is the site includes an actual tool that they call the market fluctuator. So for those of you who either forgot or never took a class in economics, uh, the prices on items change depending on where you are. Now in the modern world, it's kind of hard to see that happening except for the case of buying gas. I think that's the most common encounter most of us have with market fluctuations because different vendors sell gas for different prices. And of course, depending upon the availability of the fuel at any given time, the price can go up or down pretty drastically over the course of even a couple of weeks. Now for most regular items that you would go to buy at a big box store, we don't necessarily see that as much because there is so much supply that it's very rare to see things drastically adjust prices even from store to store. However, when you're talking about a pseudo-medieval 
fantasy land like you commonly set D&D games in, the prices even from town to town and the availability of items can change pretty extremely depending on where you are and what's going on. So basically what this generator does is it allows you to simulate that without overthinking it and running through percentage calculations and things like that. On the resource, there is a long list that includes almost all of the common items that are available in D&D and listed in the SRD. Uh, so that includes all sorts of adventuring gear, uh, basic provisions, things you can get at inns or uh, eating houses, as well as some of the basic armor and weapons. So it starts out listing all of those. Uh, it has them divided into category and what different producer of items would be required to make them, and then gives you the basic prices. Then you can start playing. So there's a drop-down list that you can use that have a few presets that correspond to common locations. So for example, they list in the top part of the list of goods a backpack which gets sold for two gold pieces and bagpipes which are sold for 30, for example. So that's the basic list, but if I go to the list and say this is a farming town, uh, the backpack and the bagpipes are all of a sudden no longer available because farming towns don't have the correct people in them to produce them. You can still buy bedrolls and blankets, but the big fancy items are no longer available. However, if I switch back over to Port City, ah, suddenly the backpack is available again. However, it now costs two gold and eight silver pieces because of supply and demand. The bagpipes, fortunately, are still at 30 gold, but that's basically what the generator does, is depending on where you set the location where the characters are trying to buy things, it adjusts what's available and modifies how much it costs based on what it thinks are the realities of living in wherever you select it. Now, there are only seven presets that you can switch between and they're all very generic but if you want to get more granular about it you can expand the options menu and that has a whole list of different things that you can modify so the first thing you can do is choose what professions are in the town which determines which goods are available so for example if there's no blacksmith, then there isn't going to be any armor or weapons available, and a few of the metal tools won't be around. Um, if there's no brewer, nobody's going to be able to buy beer, or if they can, it's going to be very expensive, and things like that. Uh, you also have the option of just blanketly not allowing more rare or uncommon items for whatever reason. Uh, and then it has two different... I want to call them tables, but they're still lists with radio buttons where you can adjust how prevalent either goods are or the materials to make the goods are. So, for example, you can adjust how readily a particular location has access to leather. And as you move that scale up or down, it's going to adjust the pricing on the goods that the table says you need leather to create. On the other hand, if you want to do it at a slightly higher level, you can just 
move over to the other list and say things like, okay, there are a lot of places where you can find general goods and food and clothing, but ammunition, armor, and weapons are going to be a lot harder to find. And that won't eliminate anything from the list, but it will adjust the prices to make it so that the armor and weapons are priced based on the fact that they aren't readily available, whereas general goods and food are going to be adjusted the other way because it's really easy for whatever place this is to get them. So that was my main attraction to this site. Like I said, there are a couple of other things available if you want to browse around. The creator of the site also used it to record a few basic bits of information about two homebrew settings they seem to have used for a couple of campaigns they ran. Uh, I won't go so far as to say that they're full setting guides like you might buy on the DMs Guild, but they give you basic rundowns of a few major people groups and the pantheon of gods and a couple of religions and things like that. So those are interesting to look at. Uh, the other thing they have on the site that is a tool is a moon phase calculator. This one is a little bit simpler on the face of it, but what it does is all of the calculations that would be required to figure out what the phases of the moon look like on a planet where there are multiple moons or the moons move faster than the Earth's does, this generator takes care of all that. Uh, you tell it how many months are in the planet's year, how many moons there are, and which year you want the moon phases to be displayed for. So like I said, not a whole lot, but uh, the couple of tools that were on there I found you know, interesting to look at. A couple of cons, like I mentioned on the calculator specifically, it's only the SRD items. So there are a couple of items that would be specific to particular locations or regions that you might want included in there that aren't. Uh, however, if you can figure out what the basic materials are to create those other items, and if you don't mind reverse engineering the math a little, you can figure out what the price adjustments would be based on whatever location you can create. Um, also, unfortunately, magic items are not included at all. Uh, it's only pricing for basic items. Now, I know in a number of D&D campaigns that isn't even really an issue. Uh, people don't bother with things like purchasing equipment or armor after probably level 5 or so, and basic goods are probably just assigned at character creation and nobody bothers. But if you are running a game where purchasing regular items or something like that is a facet of it, this tool could be of use. So I really like this market fluctuator. This is something that I didn't even think about in my games. I keep it in the back of my head a lot um, just because I've played a lot of video games actually that make that an integral part of the experience, particularly some more modern role-playing games play with the idea of, well, you know, if you go to a shopkeeper and unload a whole bunch of swords on him, then suddenly he's not going to be buying the swords for as much as when you first showed up. So I also like it for the other way around too. you know, 
if you are going to be in a setting where there is some sort of calamity, right? You know, someone, the monsters have invaded the mines, and so we're no longer getting raw material for, you know, ore. You know, we're not getting, we're not, our blacksmith is no longer uh, getting raw materials. You know, move that slider all the way over, and all of a sudden those swords mm-hmm. look expensive again uh, because he, you know, he's, he's reforging stuff because he can't get uh, new ore. So I, th- I think that you can play with it not only for character, um, you know, interactions like buying rope and, and armor, but also, hey, the, the the village is in trouble because we're all out of X and prices for that have shot up. And so if you have some of that to unload, I'll take it off your hands. Or if you can go find some, uh, I'll pay top dollar for it. So I think it, it might help to describe the urgency of a quest in more relatable terms if you can tell the characters, hey, a day's worth of food used to cost one silver piece and now it costs one gold piece, so we're in trouble. Another thing that I never... I I did think about it, I should say, but it's one thing that I never gave a whole lot of thought to is the fact that different biomes, basically, would have different access to some of these things. So some things that you would find in a port city would not be available at an oasis town. So I like that this is also bringing that into light, making you think about what would actually be available. And I also was fooling around on the rest of this guy's site while uh, you were talking, Ostron, and there's some uh, interesting homebrew rules that I thought were worth the look. Um, critical hits and potion drinking and traveling and resting. Just he, he just, you know, these are basically table rules that he uses and I thought were kind of cool. So if you're looking for if you're looking for different ideas on how to maybe solve problems or adjust things on your table, he's got some ideas for you. Links to the Marcinon homebrew site can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D, or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, since I can't stop it, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. The inaugural entry into Wizards Presents, the annual showcase revealing all the announcements for the year ahead, was streamed live on the 18th of August to anywhere you can watch on YouTube, and for their first entry, they did not disappoint. As it was an event for Wizards as a whole, D&D shared the main stage with Magic the Gathering, and while there were some pretty impactful things going for the collectible card game, D&D also saw a surprising number of reveals. Kicking things off, we have the schedule of every product right up into the launch of the next evolution of D&D, which contains the following. First up, releasing on December 6th, Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen is Wizard of the Coast's first return to Dragonlance since edition 3.5. Set in the middle of the height of the War of the Lance, Heroes will be facing off against the evil forces of Lord Soth in this war-themed adventure. Winter 2023 will bring us Keys from the Golden Vault, an adventure anthology in a similar vein to Yawning Portal, Ghosts of Saltmarsh, Candlekeep Mysteries, etc., but where heists are the major theme. Spring of 2023 will bring us something I am pretty excited about. An as-unyet-untitled new campaign set in Fandelver will be releasing in summer of 2023 expanding the Lost Minds adventure into a full campaign, with many surprises in store. The Book of Many Things uses the legendary Deck of Many Things to explore a host of new options for Dungeon Masters and players. Whatever that means. 
That will be coming your way in fall of 2023. And finally, we're rounding out the next year with a return to Planescape, containing everything you need to expand your campaigns into Sigil and the Multiverse Beyond. So that takes us through 2023, but what about 2024, Ostron? 2024 will bring us the next evolution of D&D, which we now learn is called One D&D. Much like D&D Next, One D&D, contrary to popular belief, isn't actually the name of the next edition, or next evolution, but is in fact a codename for it. One D&D is being touted as not just a new edition of D&D, but a new generation of D&D. It will take the base game of 5th edition and update it to reflect the feedback from players about how the game is played today. D&D Beyond will be even more deeply integrated into Wizards offerings, with physical books coming with digital discount codes, and there's even a new bit of software in development. We're hesitant to call it a virtual tabletop, although that's pretty much what it is. Rather than just your basic 2D tabletop like Owlbear Rodeo, Roll20, Foundry, or Fantasy Grounds, D&D Digital will be an immersive, rich player experience, with custom creation tools for dungeon masters to realize their virtual worlds in a full 3D virtual tabletop. But enough about the fancy tech and deep discounts. We know you all really want to know what one D&D's rule set will hold for us. Well, the wizards say that the rulebooks will be updated to be, quote, more comprehensive, unquote, than the current core, though fully backwards compatible with 5th edition. Further, they say that it's less important for them to create new editions of the game, and more important to continue to grow and expand the game you love with each new product. Does this hint at a shift to a living rule set? Further, the playtest for 1D&D is available starting right now, so if you really want to dive into the rules, be sure to check out the playtest on D&D Beyond. Right now, it's base rules and character options, with a new part of the rule set dropping every month. As for our thoughts on the newest rules, we need a little more time to fully digest the changes, and so we'll be bringing you our full review next week. So, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really, really glad that the moniker 1D&D is only a placeholder because I hate it. Oh, there's there's nothing more permanent than a temporary name. Hmm. I mean, the <laughs> the fifth edition subreddit is still called D and D Next, uh, despite yeah. Yeah, I, I it, it my school district a couple years ago rebranded. I'm sure at the behest of some consultant, uh, rebranded the whole school district as One Maze, like like the the word one, and then Maze is the school district M A. I-Z-E, and then they replaced the I in the maze with a numeral one. So, if a school mm-hmm. district in Kansas can be that stupid, um, there's there's no telling what depths the subsidiary of a major toy corporation will go to uh, to, 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 to plumb the depths of, the, of, of marketing stupidity. I'm thinking one D&D is, is, the, is the name, and it will be for, uh, for forever. I don't know if I'll be able to play it then because I hate the name. <laughs> it's, uh, well, to ease your mind a little bit, it's not sticking with a lot of people. Uh, at various places online, I've seen people call it D&D Next, uh, 1D&D. Some people are still sticking with Next Evolution. Some are calling it D&D 5.5, and others are just calling it D&D 6th Edition. So... If 1D&D is the way they're going, it hasn't quite caught on yet. Also, I am... I'm thinking it's a little too optimistic for them to 
basically come out and say this is going to be the last edition because eventually so many rules are going to change for it because that's just how tabletop games go that that they're just going to end up changing the entire thing and then it's not going to be where it started however many years or months beforehand yeah i think um like lennon got all excited um because he immediately had the tinfoil hat theory of oh they're changing it to a living rule set and it's never gonna be an addition ever again which i think he's actually partially right but not to the extent he was probably thinking i imagine what they're going to do is just they won't make any changes that immediately invalidate all of the things that are out there. So they're going to try to avoid doing a break where you have to buy entirely new copies of everything because it doesn't work with the new set. What they may do is change things over time slowly, sort of like they do with Magic the Gathering. So, you know, at any given time, there's going to be nine or ten adventures that still work with wherever the rule set is at that given point but some of the really old ones will have to be reprinted because things have changed enough that certain things from those settings are actually broken i don't know if that will work but that seems to be where they're going or at least where they're aiming yeah and i think that probably you know the the living rule set is 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 their midway point between this hybrid, you know, offering physical books with digital discounts to why are we printing books anymore? Paper is expensive and hard to move. Um, and especially mm. with that announcement of their fancy online tabletop and stuff, it seems to me that they've latched onto the notion that digital delivery of, of, uh, of their goods is a superior channel, which is why they bought D&D Beyond. So I, I think, you know, the phase out of physical books and the fact that they're not announcing that they've taken over Heroes Forge or any other miniature printing companies and stuff like that, I think that gives you a pretty strong signal of, of where they're going. Uh, the, the physical stuff is going to become more and more of a niche, and they're going to concentrate on delivering via digital. So uh, this may be a transition era, while that hybrid um, model is still viable, but... Ostron, if those adventures ever do get obsoleted because of rule changes, they're just going to be obsolete. I don't think they're going to come back and redo them. Possibly not. They would probably print something that's, you know, totally new but oddly familiar at the same time. <laughs> but they won't print it. They'll like, they'll make it available on D&D Well, yeah, they'll release it, yeah. So the next thing coming out is Dragonlance, so I guess they figured out that lawsuit. Yes. I am... <laughs> First of all, really excited because Dragonlance. But second of all, really confused at the name. Are like, is is this gonna be similar to Tyranny of Dragons? Cause Shadow of the Dragon Queen sounds familiar. Yeah, except um they went into more details. So the Dragon Queen in this case is Tekesis. Yeah. Um I mean I knew that. It just, it just feels like this is Tyranny of Dragons just in the Dragonlance setting instead of in Forgotten Realms. Maybe. I don't, I'm not familiar enough with 
Tyranny of Dragons to say whether that's a valid take or not, but I've been reading up on it a little bit, and apparently they are very heavily focused on the the war aspect. Like, if you want to play D&D where your characters are in the middle of an active war zone, that's what this adventure is going to be. Uh, it's, you know, you're not off adventuring on your own in the wilderness, encountering random things, looking for a lost tomb, and then delving into the dungeon to find it. This is, the war is in full swing, there are huge armies on both sides there are active front lines and supply routes and things like that and all of the activity is taking place in and around the conflict okay so some of tyranny of dragons was kind of like that but honestly if it's going to be more of a redo I would be okay with that because while I did enjoy for the most part the Tyranny of Dragons campaign, the second half of it was really hard to keep up with. The other thing I'm wondering about is how much they're going to stick to the lore because in Dragonlance lore, dragons are invulnerable to everything except magic and dragon lances and at the time period when this and is other set, dragons. well, yeah, and other dragons, but that's not usually an option for the player characters. Yeah, true. Uh, um, at the time when this is set, I don't know if they have access to the dragon lances, but yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see what they do with this. Um, especially, I, I'm also at a meta level curious to see how many things are going to be in there that are quite obviously the result of, well, this was clearly a clause in whatever settlement agreement they worked out with Weiss and Hick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, moving on, the next thing, keys from the Golden Vault. Heists. I'm nervous about this one. Same. Um, I, I touched on this when we were talking about Radiant Citadel. I am all for an anthology of adventures, but I don't want it to be in a setting because then you get more adventures than setting. And if you're going to make a setting that the adventures go into, the setting needs its own volume to really get across what it's about. So I hope they don't go that direction on this one. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping the Golden Vault, whatever it is, is located somewhere we already know. As opposed to, here's a brand new city with a whole new culture and people you don't know about, and here's two paragraphs on all of that, and here's all the adventures. Well, if you look at, I mean, and this is just me looking at the, the examples that Lennon put in there, you know, Yawning Portal is a tavern, Candlekeep is like, you know, a keep. So is the Golden Vault going to be like, a rogue base or a thieves den of some kind where that's the starting point and it gives you the hooks and probably an NPC that hands out missions you know kind of an acquisitions incorporated kind of a thing you know and then you go off and have those heists elsewhere or you know it's it, it's a rich dude's mansion could be anywhere you know, it's a museum in a major city could be anywhere you know, I mean, it's that I wonder if it's just giving you a place where your adventurers can start and then the, the, the 
you know, the different plots take you around. So with Yawning Portal and to an extent Ghosts of Saltmarsh, I completely agree with you on that. However, with Candlekeep Mysteries, most people, at least that I saw, thought that the adventures were still going to be set inside Candlekeep. And the vast majority of them were not. Actually, I'm not sure if any of them actually were. Candlekeep and is boring. so, yeah, we got a lot of, let's start out in Candlekeep, and here's a little bit of the lore. We're going to, like, dangle this in front of your face, but then we're going to take you away from Candlekeep, and then you're not going to find out any of the cool stuff that's in there unless you go off, off the rails and somehow avoid all the adepts and they don't shoo you back to the front entrance. So, so they did exactly what you want. They didn't They didn't box you into a new city or anything. They let you go out into the world. You know, the, the, they, you know, they gave you a bunch of adventures that took you out there. They didn't have an, a place. They didn't make it out. They didn't make the, 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 the place a base. No, but the, but the title was a bit of a bait and switch. And arguably they did think they did the same thing with Radiant Citadel. Obviously, you know, and these guys come up with great names like One D and D. So, you know, you know, their titling department <laughs> is just, you know, on the ball in these things. Yeah, and and I will say, Golden Vault doesn't really contain a lot of promises to it. It's right. not, it it's not a location that they're playing up, and it's not somewhere that already exists. My actual worry was on the idea that they call these heist-themed adventures. Waterdeep Dragon Heist, their only other heist adventure so far, wasn't a heist. Dungeon crawl. Yeah, it, it was it, it was a dungeon crawl, a couple of dungeon crawls, arguably, but it wasn't a heist adventure. So I'm I'm actually hoping this is another one where they found a bunch of other people to write the adventures because I don't think wizards themselves know what a heist actually is. Well, I mean, probably all these adventures are not going to have a single key in them. It's all going to be all combination locks and, you know, pressure plates and stuff. Not a single key anywhere. Yeah, I'm betting it's going to be like a Zelda quest where this <laughs> golden vault needs six keys to open it. And hey, guess what? You have to steal all six. Heist within a heist within They're a heist. hidden throughout the dungeon. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Moving on to Bigby Presents Glory of the Giants. So. Okay, so I Obviously, I'm excited about this. Yeah, I was going to say. However, if you're going to make an entire book about giants, are we also going to get an entire book about beholders? Are we also going to get an entire book about mind flayers? What about the other monsters and species that basically got chucked out the window with Volos? Well, I mean, there's a long time after 2024. I mean, they they, they got to they got to let that one D and D you know circus play out for a long time. So sure, why not? I hope that they do that because, like, obviously, I feel like there really is enough giant lore to make an entire book out of it. But I also feel that way about beholders and mind players. Yeah, there is in, I mean, as our short rests and in some cases long rests have demonstrated, there is a wealth of existing lore and potential lore for a lot of different creatures in D&D. So it's definitely something they could do and have done in the past. We'll just have to see if it's something they're going to return to. I do hope they put that Norse-inspired language back in there, though, because I, I enjoyed using that at my table. 
All right, uh, new Fandelver campaign. Uh, it, there's not a lot to what this. What were you just saying? Uh, when something gets old and creaky, they're gonna like update it with new and improved whatever's when it gets obsolete. What were you just talking about a little while ago? Yeah, and, and I'm remembering back to the episode where I wasn't here, where you and Lennon were talking about how the Spelljammer intro mission is a much better intro mission than oh, Fandelver yeah. is. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking this this is either going to quote-unquote fix Fandelver to make it a better intro setting, or, because it says they're going to turn Lost Minds of Fandelver into a full campaign, it might be just them saying, yeah, Fandelver's not really good as an intro anymore, but it's still a great campaign as long as you take the original and then add in this material. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me if they redid the whole thing stem to stern, you know. Uh, you know, like you know, like the Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which isn't really a heist. You know, it's a dungeon crawl. This is a this is a dungeon yeah. crawl. You know, you go into the Lost Mine, uh, so it's it would it would make sense for them to start back at level one and then take that first adventure as part of a you know the beginning. All right, the Book of Many Things. I I have a thought on this one, and I'm not I'm not enthusiastic, and let me say why. The Deck of Many Things <laughs> is. It's a bit of chaos, right? You don't you don't find one of those unless your DM is willing to like just let things go nuts, right? Why do you need a book for the DM to use that gives you permission to go nuts? I, I don't understand this. Yeah, I see your point. Um, I just yeah, I don't know what their I can't figure out what their angle is here. Like you said, because yeah. the deck of many things by definition is supposed to just throw major monkey wrenches into campaigns. It's a, it's a, it's a table yeah. flipper contained within the rules. And it's sort of like, you know, somebody... This is like somebody trying to sit down and actually play Fizzman. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> On Thursday night, like, no less. When it's dark right, out. It's like the, the point of that game was never to try to do something around it. Yeah. It's... It's undefinable random chaos by definition. And whenever you try to control random chaos, again, by definition, it stops being random chaos. So, yeah, I don't I don't know what their their angle is here. Uh, and then finally, the thing that, you know, at least I think half of the fandom has been clamoring for Planescape. Are you happy, Astron? Um, I was I was sort of neutral on Planescape. I'm more... For the Planescape, I'm more interested in the lore. Because they have, ever since the start of 5th edition, done their damnedest to avoid defining the universe. <laughs> we'll wait till the next segment. And, yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, they, did do, they did do a little of it with the new Spelljammer thing. But all of the extra planes like the elemental planes and the negative energy planes and all the afterlife planes and all of those it's just been sort of yeah they're sure they're they're things well, how do they work they're things and they haven't defined them so I'm curious to see what they do with this and I want to know what they do with Sigil, because that's always been an, a fascination of mine. I played the video game and then uh, once through and then never went back to it. Have fun with it. 
The latest hardcover adventure from Wizards of the Coast has been released at all good, friendly local gaming stores and digital marketplaces near you now. Yes, the release that saw Ostron hand in his resignation, which was promptly then fed to Peaches, is finally here. Spelljammer Adventures in Space is part setting guide, part monster manual, part adventure book, and part DM screen. Available physically in a three-book, one-screen set for $65 U.S. American, or digitally in a web page for approximately $35 United States currency. Please check with your retailer as prices may vary. As the book is split into three parts, we're going to give our thoughts in three parts. Firstly, the Astral Adventures Guide, then Boo's Astral Menagerie, and finally, the adventure Light of Xerixis. So, if you want to go into the adventure completely blind, you just need to skip forward at the end of this segment until you hit the scrying pool. Alright, Astron, take it away. And remember, Lennon's Block the Doors is highly caffeinated and just loves that Eldritch Blast. And he got Ryu to tie me to the chair. Book 1 is entitled The Astral Adventures Guide and contains all the rules needed to run adventures that are out of this world, quite literally. The introduction is relatively light and contains the section's terminology and using this book. However, it's in this section that fans of the original Spelljammer will notice a large number of differences between its initial outing and its 5th edition incarnation. Gone is the phlogiston and gone are the crystal spheres. Instead, the cosmological makeup of all D&D worlds, and yes, that's all D&D worlds including you, Eberron, are as follows. Every world, whether round, flat, or orbited by the rings of Sybaris, exists in an airless void known as wild space. That world may have celestial neighbors, such as comets, moons, suns, and so on, but the entire collection of heavenly bodies and the planet itself exist in a wild space system. When you stand on said planet and gaze up into the night sky and see stars, what you're actually looking at is the astral plane beyond the wild space region. The astral plane being, quite literally, the plane of stars. The astral plane is infinitely large, and it's within the regions of wild space where the material plane and the astral plane overlap. If you were to leave your home system and travel through the void of wild space, eventually you start to see a silvery haze. The haze then becomes a thick mist, and eventually it's like traveling through a cloud, but the stars are always visible through it. This is the astral sea, known more commonly as the Silver Void. This is the overlap of Wild Space and the Astral Sea that make up the Astral Plane. Unlike Wild Space, however, the Astral Sea is not airless. You can breathe normally and suffer no ill effects. You can also propel yourself through the Astral Sea with the power of your mind alone, though given the number of creatures that lurk there, most people opt to travel in well-armed ships. This is where the spell jamming helms come in, which still must be piloted by a spellcaster. Chapter 1 introduces two new backgrounds, the Astral Drifter and the Wild Spacer. The Astral Drifter is a wonder of the stars, a traveler that's been in the Silver Void for so long they may have forgotten their original homeworld. During their journeys, they cross paths with a wandering deity, and so in addition to all the standard things the background gives you, they also gain the Magic Initiate feat, but must choose Cleric. The Wild Spacer, on the other hand, was someone raised directly in the void of Wild Space, maybe as a moon farmer or an asteroid miner. Hashtag remember the cant. During your upbringing, you had a harrowing encounter with one of the many terrors in Wild Space and must choose from a D10 table to see what creature it was, from classics such as Beholders to the more modern Space Clowns. 
This encounter did toughen you up though, literally, as you gain the tough feet in addition to the usual background things, cause you know Inya Warwala Sasake. Next up are six new playable races. To start off with, because we all know how much we really needed another elf sub-race, we get the Astral Elf, an elf denizen of the Astral Plane who is possibly hundreds of years old, an Autonome, a mechanical gnome who has free will, the, I'm going to say, Hif, the gif Jif, I don't know, a hippo-headed being of impressive size, the Hidozi, a simian being who adapts well to the hazards of wild space, the Plasmoid, an amoeba-like person, and Thrycreen, a telepathic insectile being. Every race uses the Tasha's method of ability score increases, and each comes with several flavorful abilities unique to their race. Chapter 2 is entitled Astral Adventuring and contains everything you'd ever need to know about the setting of Spelljammer itself, all in one handy-dandy supplement. As mentioned before, a spelljamming helm is still required to be attuned to by a spellcaster in order to successfully pilot the vessel. And this chapter contains rules for acquiring or crafting the helm as necessary. It also discusses the finer points of astral seamancy, which is a great word, such as the standard cruising speed of 100 million miles per day, how your air pockets change from fresh to foul to deadly if you don't touch down on a planet frequently, uh, word to the wise, make landfall every six months or things are going to get a little putrid aboard. As an aside, that 100 million miles figure translates to a spell jammer ship going about 22 light seconds per hour. That means you could get from Earth to the moon in about three minutes. It also means that all ships from Late Dangerous can outrun the spell jammer after about 30 seconds in supercruise. Further, as every good sailor knows, it's called the theory of gravity, not the actual hard science of gravity. So this chapter also provides detailed instructions on how gravity works in Spelljammer. In short, it works, and I quote, <clears throat> in the direction of effect which is most convenient. What this boils down to is large round bodies, like planets and asteroids, have their gravity pull everything towards the center of the body, just like it works here on Earth. However, smaller objects, such as a nautiloid or any other spell gemming ship, has its gravity radiate from a plane that cuts horizontally through the object and extends out as far as its air envelope. Because of this planar nature of gravity, it's possible that if an object falls overboard, it will fall towards the gravity plane, pass through it, continue falling a little before the plane drags it back upwards. This can result in something like an object or a person oscillating back and forth across the gravity plane, dropping in one direction until it crosses the plane, then reverses back towards the plane again forever, or until something causes it to stop. Of course, fire doesn't work in the void of wild space unless it's created by magical means, because as everybody knows, you can't light a flame in the vacuum of space. That's just physics. Next up in Chapter 2 is a section covering the makeup of the astral plane itself, detailing how to travel between worlds and between systems. Astral fishing, weightlessness, and two new magic spells create air bubble and create spell jamming helm. Next up is a primer on how combat works, essentially it's tall ships in space, with a few minor differences on how to handle overlapping gravity planes and air bubbles. Note, the bigger ship always wins. Chapter 2 ends with a list of various spelljamming ships one may encounter in the Astral Sea, from the Bombard, to the Nautiloid, to the Night Spider, to the Star Moth, they're all here. Finally, Chapter 3 covers the Rock of Brawl, a city built on an asteroid with inhabitants from many worlds in the multiverse. This city can provide a hub for adventures and campaigns in wild space and covers the political makeup with Prince Andrew and his underbarons, as well as a brief primer 
on the various locales within the rock that your players may want to visit. Primer. But this was written in British. And so <laughs> it is it is very prim and very proper and very primer. <laughs> like the like the, like the I'm, I'm honestly Yeah, I said I said that with a question mark because I'm honestly like um now questioning my own pronunciation of that because we all know how good I am. Well, no, it's it's, it's another actually English. British American. <laughs> well, you're not an Inuitawala, you know. <laughs> so I yeah. Okay. So you gonna you gonna, so, gonna start this off? You gonna, you gonna eat yourself into this ostron like a little bit of time? Put your toe in. I will say this is not as bad as the original spell gym. You mean not as fun? It's still bad. <laughs> it's still not okay, <laughs> but it's not as bad as it once was. Yeah, they they have vanillaized it a little bit. Um, it's you know the the first one was completely late 70s psychedelic album cover Boston journey you know weird concept thing they've 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 dialed that back quite a bit um, uh, yeah they've dialed, they've dialed that back quite a bit this there's still you know space clowns and giant hippos so we got that going for us which is nice um but I am not a huge fan of all the whole gravity interaction things and air bubbling overrides and I love that they had to put in new well not new rules but make sure that everybody knows how falling works in wild space mm. that, I, I had to I had to stand up and yeah. take a walk for oh. a little bit when I read the <laughs> sentence the reason everything pulls its own atmosphere along through space is the force of gravity I'm so yeah, they no. This is this is just no. It, you know, as as silly as the original Spelljammer was, they did not go into great detail about why all these things happened. They just did because you needed that for the adventure. I mean, we we don't need Spelljammer techno babble for some person to say I'm going to interfere with their gravity plane to disperse the air bubble at point four seven. No, no, just if you're on a ship, it's got air. It's got air for X number of people for X number of days. Just get to your next waypoint before you run out of air. Or they could have just hand-waved it as being like, hey, it's one of the things the Spelljammer helm right. does. Yes. And left yeah. it at that. It, it, and and if people want to make up an adventure plot where the Spelljammer helm breaks or whatever and things don't work quite right, that's fine. I mean, if I ever run one of these campaigns, all that stuff's going out the window. All that stuff is just gone. Well, then it's just going to sit there bobbing up and down outside the window. Yeah, no, it, 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 go, it goes, it, <laughs> it's just like water. It just, it falls to about like the midpoint of the bottom of the ship and then it just stays there. Bye. There's like these rule. there's a rule that if it goes overboard and it's bobbling back and forth, it also floats toward away from the ship towards the edge of the air bubble at 10 feet per round or something like that. Or 10 feet per, I don't know. What, why? Who cares? It's overboard. You have to figure out a way to go get it. Do you have a rope? Do you do you have? Can somebody fly? Does someone have a blo- a broomstick? Figure it out, figure it out, guys. You're the adventuring party. Figure it out. It, it, it it's a lot. It, it over it over eggs the pudding quite a bit. And then the other the ships will ram, and then you can turn the other ship's gravity well over. I mean, someone's clearly thinking that this will introduce some fun mechanics with ramming and people falling off their own ship upside down. Okay, I also see it as that needlessly complicates the ramming situation. You know, like, are, are, are we sure that we're approaching each other on the same plane? Are they coming in upside down and above us? Are they trying to ram us upside down so that we all fall off the ship? 
you're just trying to get to the encounter where people can draw their swords and fling their spells at each other. You're just trying to get to the point where one party boards the other party's ship. Why complicate it? So I'm looking at the three magic items that have been introduced here. And obviously one of them is the spell jamming helm. Uh, I'm trying to figure out why they decided to call it a fish suit, but that's neither here nor there. I might be in love with the Wild Space Orrery. Yeah, that's cool. I do like that. That is so neat. Yeah. I would love something like that. So, for the benefit of our listeners, an Orrery is basically a working model of the solar system and the constellations. And the Wild Space Orrery is an arcane device that automatically tracks the positions and movements of all suns, planets, moons, and comets within that system projecting a display of all these bodies in the space above its current location. And that's just really neat. Yeah, as a con- as a concept, and I think Ostron was hinting at this a little in the previous segment, but they've developed a D&D cosmology, which, you know, that orrery will come in real handy. But also I think it's just mm-hmm. another one of those, you know, plot devices that a DM can use to say... Uh, I've decided it's going to take you just a little bit longer than you have enough air to get there. You know, it's it, it's it's yeah. it's basically all, all that stuff is to do I want to have it be a challenge to arrive at the destination for the adventure or do I want it to just be, OK, it takes you 30 days to be there. Everybody email me what you want to do with your downtime and, you know, we'll pick up the adventure next time when you land at, you know, location X. Uh, so I so. Even the 100 million miles per day thing, its that's nonsensical. Uh, because you just you stop the ship every time it comes near an encounter. So it's, it's, it, it seems silly to introduce these navigational rules um, when all it really is there for is for the DM to decide, do I want you to get stopped by pirates? And even, I mean, putting the speed figure in there threw me because of that reason exactly. Like, there's no, there's no definitive distance between anything established no. No, why anywhere. And, I mean, even fairly established science fiction slash science fantasy stories have fudged that all over the place. Everybody travels at the speed of plot. It, right. Like, nobody in, in Star Wars yeah. even, nobody knows how fast the jump to light speed actually moves. But we like, but we do know that when you make it 0.5 past light speed, that's pretty good. Yes, we do know that, but we have no concept of how fast any of those ships are actually Millennium going. Falcon fast. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it did seem a little odd that they threw that in there, especially because, like, the only other application I can think of it is if you need to somehow map it for things moving slower, but... Like that's not gonna factor if you try to put a spell jamming ship going at speed on a five foot grid. It's it's going to be okay. And for one microsecond of this person's turn, you think you see a large ship in the sky, and then it's yeah, gone. This, speaking as someone who has played a spell jammer campaign, our, our DM had to make up a lot of stuff. Right? He had to. There weren't exactly giant rule sets out there of how this is all supposed to work. What it comes down to is, does the DM and do the players want to have a standoff encounter because they think their ship has better weapons? 
Or do they want to close in and try to board because that ship outguns theirs and they think they have a better chance of going hand-to-hand? That's it. There's there's no... There's really no, there shouldn't be anything more complicated than that. If the, if the heavier arm shift wants to stay stand off and shoot, the lighter arm shift wants to come in and board. That's the fight. And there's there's no other need for speeds or anything like that other than your ship is heavy, that ship is light. Your ship is slow, that ship is fast. And the DM just decides: Am I gonna let them do it or not? It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. What kind of encounter do my players want, and am I gonna let them have it? I do find it kind of amusing that they caved to the like meta internet pressure and included a fishing mini game <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah absolute zelda thing there yeah <laughs> it's only a chart it's only a table it's fine i'm irritated that there's another elf sub race but i don't like the auto no well i thought that was clever lennon's gonna hate it eh. <laughs> lennon hates a lot of things and that's all right but i, I thought the auto was clever um, I thought the plasmoid was, you know, I mean, it's Odo. If anybody wants to play Odo, you go right ahead. There's, there's that. I mean, there's, I think almost every sci-fi role-playing game has a plasmoid, and they all basically work the same. And yeah. this is not it. There were no surprises in here for me. And before we, before we leave this section, I think the, uh, what you were wishing for in earlier sections, you know, or what I was talking about in earlier sections... Uh, it's an adventure hub, the the Rock of Brawl. The, so there's the first book gives you that hub where you can there's lists of taverns and uh, NPCs that you can find there, and you know it's a place where if your party wants to go wander around, you can you know kind of set them there and let them you know, get into trouble. Um, so if, if they, they, there is a a home or a, a port that they can call home temporarily while they um, try to find things to do in wild space. So I thought that was a useful addition as well. Also, they brought back Large Luigi. He's <laughs> a fixture of the original Spelljammer. Well, they got rid of the you know flammable atmosphere and crystal spheres, and they bring back Beholder. Okay, fine. On the theme of Wizards of the Coast marketing department utterly fails at names, the Spelljammer ship names are boring. Yeah. Like, other than the Nautiloid, they're... I don't know, I was expecting... Other than the Nautiloid and the Tyrant ship, I was expecting more. I'll tell you what I was not expecting. What's that? What? So, every single one of these Spelljammer vessels, it includes a an, an art piece showing that vessel traveling through space or in the air above a planet. With the exception of the Turtle ship, which is actually in water. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was interesting. It specifically says it can be a submarine. You know, the turtle ship can be a submarine. Oh, I know. I just, I just thought it was interesting how that's the only one that they decided to put in water when half the other ships are sea creatures of some kind, mm-hmm. and also are shaped in such a way that they can float on the water. Well, yeah, but if you want ships floating on the water, buy Ghost of Saltmarsh. Well. Why is the turtle ship being shown in water? Because <laughs> it's the only one that can do that. Well, my point though, my point though is that it's not being shown in space or wild space. Yeah, no, I I see that. The only other thing I briefly wanted to touch on was the gods are in the astral plane now. Well, they can be. 
Right, but it said that the, uh, the astral plane is full of astral dominions, which is where living gods set up their temples or their homes. So I think that means Celestia isn't a thing anymore. I mean, we'll have to wait for Planescape before that becomes definitive, but I think all the gods and their home temples or home bases are in the astral plane now. I, I think, I mean, and my, my impression that I got from that was that you'll find a lot of dead gods there. And maybe that they you find some uh, like you know this like it's more like people buying their cemetery plot while they're while they're still alive like they're required as as a god to have a spot in the astral plane someplace because you know that's that's the rules of godness but you can, but they live wherever they feel like it or they can have a base wherever they want to maybe they'll have their own plane but it's just like this is where you go when you're you know when you run out of worshippers or if somebody gets jealous and curses you or something. Mm, I don't I don't know. I think I think their intention was that, you know, the the living god's main pad is is in the astral sea. And like, you know, so if you're devoted to Moradin and like Moradin I think always had a, a celestial forge or whatever. That celestial forge is now in the astral sea. That was my read of it anyway. Far out, man. Did either of you see any reference to the living ship named the Spelljammer? Nope. I didn't either. Just making sure we were on the same page and seeing the same things. That's that's either something they've decided to drop or it's going to be the focus of a new adventure. The next book in the Spelljammer set is Boo's Astral Menagerie and is essentially a monster manual full of creatures unique to the Spelljammer setting. However, you're not limited to just what appears in the Astral Menagerie, as the introduction reminds us that outer planar entities, such as angels, devils, and slotty, are just as likely to be found on the Astral Plane as they are on the Material Plane world. And the same is true for Aboleths, Giants, Mind Flayers, Umber Hulks, Vampires, Beholders, etc, etc. Oh, and Mimics, because of course. There's a list of all monsters by challenge rating, but take care when relying on this as some of the monsters have unique and unusual magical attacks that make them a little on the tougher side when compared to monsters of a similar challenge rating. Also, challenge rating is complete garbage and you shouldn't be relying on it anyway, but that's a, that's a whole thing. We'll talk about our favorite and not-so-favorite monsters shortly, but for a brief rundown of what you can expect, you have Artux, Astral Elves, and Autonomes, Braxet, Burogs, Chewinga, and Cosmic Horrors, Duars, Aesthetics, Eye Mongers, and Fear, Gaj, Gifts, Jammer Leeches, and Kindori, Ryu's favorite category, Lunar Dragons, Megapedes, Mercane, and Murder Comets, Nithalgu, Neoji, Plasmoids, and Sirlons, Rigar, and Scavers, Ryu's other favorite category, Solar Dragons, Ryu's least favorite category, Space Clowns, Space Eels, Space Guppies, and then just a whole bunch of things that just say Space whatever. Like Space Prairie Chickens. Sure, why not? Anyway, Space Things, followed by Thrycreen, Vampirates, and the Zodar. So I do have to say that this was the bright spot for me in the review of this material, because there are some neat creatures in here. So speaking of 
Obviously, my favorites are the Lunar and Solar Dragons, but close runner-up, my new most favorite species besides dragons, and one that I really, really want to be a playable race in the future, the Doars. They are little penguin <sighs> people, and I love them so much. Penguin merchants. I mean, there's nothing to say that they can't have an outlier that doesn't want to be a merchant. Yes, the combat penguin. Yeah, the, 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 he was, yes. was rejected by his family to off to seek his fortune. I'd love it. I'd play it in a heartbeat. Um, I mean, they don't they don't have anything in particular that sets them apart mechanically. So, I mean, you could probably play a flightless Aarakocra and say that it's a Doar. Another thing is I was actually somewhat surprised to see Chewingas here. Those were one of my most favorite things in Chult, and I did not expect them to be in Spelljammer as well. I'm trying to remember if they were originally Spelljammer. At least from what I remember of Tomb of Annihilation, it seemed to me that they were native to Chult, but that could also easily just be the interpretation of Chultons and not actual lore. So no, it looks like Chewingas were new for 5th edition. So I think they're just... I mean, usually in in the olden times when there's a creature present in Spelljimmer and somewhere else, the explanation is, oh, well, they fell off a ship or got marooned when one landed. So that's probably the justification here. I'm with you. I like I like the Solar Dragons, mostly because, as an avid Star Trek fan, the Solar Dragons just breathe photon torpedoes as breath weapons. Yep. I thought that was a nice touch. Blinding. Uh, although I do have to say the... I was really impressed by the art for the Kindori. Like, the picture in the in the book is really, really nice. There are several depictions of them throughout this entire volume, and I like how they're shown somewhat differently every time. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of interpretations of space whales, but the Kindori are definitely one of my favorites. This is just going to make my DM sad because uh, he made up a whole bunch of creatures for us to kill on his own. It's one That's one of his, that's, this is DM, you know, uh, uh, draw, you know, some people like maps. He likes to make up creatures. So now he's going to be like, why do I bother? I've got all these set up here for me. So poor guy. Mm. <laughs> Dude, somebody was looking over my shoulder when I pulled up the entry on the giant space hamster and they immediately were like, I want to play one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we all know it's miniature giant space uh, space hamsters. That's where it's at. That's the real power. Mm. And I did like, I did like that block. I, uh, you know, speaking of recycling things from the ancient times, you know, they, they, the, the miniature giant space hamster hides its telepathic abilities from most people, you know, very, very few people know that they're actually telepathic. So it appears that Minsk wasn't crazy after all. Yeah, he was just, mm. he was just especially trusted by Boo, the miniature giant space hamster. I thought that was, that, that's nice retcon of the lore to, to you, know, uh, you know, Minsk wasn't insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I also found it somewhat amusing that they included space seagulls. 
which are called space molly mocks, but they're effectively seagulls or maybe pelicans. I did want to make a meta note about the resource, which is they have a fair number of creatures in here that are actually from Dark Sun originally. Um, the just off the top of my head when I was reading the Braxat, the Gage, the Thrykreen, um, and there was one more that I found. The, I think the Surins, but all of those were originally Dark Sun creatures. Basically, there's a whole bunch of them listed in there that say they adapted to a desert climate, and the desert climate they adapted to was the one in Dark Sun. So it's kind of interesting because people mentioned that they thought one of the creatures they previewed was from Dark Sun. And there are a bunch of them in here that are from Dark Sun, but there's no mention of Dark Sun or the planet that's set on, whose name escapes me. Just but we know it's out there because they've now told us that all the worlds are there. So if you want to take right. a Spelljammer so ship it's... to get to that spot, well, go for it, buddy. That's probably going to fuel more speculation about whether Dark Sun is coming as a setting. So going back to the dragons real quick, the Lunar Dragons have some of the coolest regional effects I think I've seen. The Haunting Moan is just fun because it can get louder or fainter the closer one gets to the lair. I find that I find that a fun change. But the moon devils were definitely my favorite. They're free-willed air elementals that deal, deal cold damage instead of bludgeoning. And that's that's just a fun change to see cuz usually the uh, the creatures that show up in a dragon's lair or near it, I should say, aren't elementals. And I just like the thought of changing up something that's already established and uh, putting it in. And the final piece of Adventures in Space is the actual adventure itself, the Light of Xerixis. We're going to try to keep it spoiler-free, but there are Red Dragon Riders, so it might get a little spoilery. So if you want to go in completely blind, skip forward a bit until the scrying pool. For those that are still with us, strap in, because Wild Space awaits. This adventure starts out on any world of your choosing, meaning you can very easily transition into a spell jamming campaign from pretty much anywhere. The adventure also assumes that the characters have zero knowledge or experience with spell jamming, so provides the characters an introduction to everything they'll need to know. The bulk of the story revolves around the characters' efforts to save their homeworld from attack by an empire of astral elves, and the attack is underway when the adventure begins. The characters then seek refuge aboard a spell jamming vessel and then head out into the deep black on an adventure to discover not only who's responsible for the attack, but how well they can save their world from its inevitable doom. During the adventure, the characters will encounter many classic spelljammer creatures and races, including Princess Zadali and Prince Zealoth, astral elves embroiled in a power struggle, the latter of which is the one who currently threatens the character's world. The players must then assemble a very unlikely alliance of ragtag heroes and lead the charge to strike at the very heart of the Astral Elf Empire itself, the Imperial Citadel, which orbits a star called Xerixis. So is it just canon that all the Astral Elves have X in their names? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, you know, all the Vulcans started with S and T apostrophe until you know, at some point they didn't, so... 
I imagine we'll find some astral elves that, you know, break convention. But I don't think we should talk about it too much because, yes, spoiler alerts. I mean, you know, this... It, 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 it looked like a fun campaign. It looked like there was enough there. I think they said it was supposed to take place over, like, a dozen sessions, approximately. Uh, it's It's a little shorter than a standard adventure module, but about on par for adventures included in resource books. And, of course, they need to make room for whatever, you know, expansion pack or whatever that they have that puts a dark sun planet and then what other other planets, you know, uh, highway to Eberron, you know, situation. So they they just want to whet your appetite. I do want to briefly note there's a location in the adventure called Doom Space. And given what they did with everything else in Spelljammer, I don't understand why they went through so many hoops and bent over backwards to avoid calling the dang thing a black hole. (laughs) Well, you see, Ostron, gravity works different in the wild space Spelljammer universe. You know, it's it's not it's not quite the same. So they don't want they don't want people you know blustering in here with all these you know physics things about how black holes actually work. (sighs) They should have just left it alone. They should have just. Your ship just floats, and there's just gravity because there is, and just go with it. I'm just sitting here, still not able to get over the flump in a pirate hat. Everything looks better in a pirate hat. <laughs> Hippos, plasmoids, they all look better in a pirate hat. Penguins? And now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, let's head on over to the scrying pool to see what you all have to say. What news from the north? Dinos of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, what was your first 5th edition character? Did they joyfully climb to the heights of accomplishment and vanquish all their foes with friends aplenty? Or were they an abject failure, relegated to obscurity and death, and replaced at the earliest opportunity? And what's your latest experience with the undead? Were you dealing with large constructs and weird bodies of large creature? Or was it just the hordes and hordes of zombies that everyone knows and loves? Azrael from Discord writes in and says, First 5th edition character I played was an Orc Barbarian character, based on the character Grom Hellscream from the Warcraft universe. My friend was running a 5th edition adaptation of a 1st edition module, Dwellers of the Forbidden City. We completed the module, but never went further than that with those characters. I hope I get to play him again someday. As for my most recent experience with the undead, it's the big bad evil lady from the campaign I'm currently running. She is most of the way through taking over the center of the multiverse, yes, Sigil, The party is on their quest to defeat her and restore the Lady of Pain to her rightful place. She is a Mega Lich, who is like what the mythic monsters from Theros should have been. She has stages for when the party finally gets to meet her in combat. Can't wait. And Wayne Frobisher wrote in on Discord to say, I started playing 5th edition as soon as it came out in 2014, or earlier if you count the D&D next playtest. Bring back the Dexterity Barbarian. My first non-playtest character was Annie Bundyarg a human multi-class bard cleric of Lyra. Annie's purpose in life was to spread joy, e.g. a ritual to cleanse an evil shrine involves crudely painting a silly face on it. Her adventuring career ended in what was essentially a random stop in a throwaway town to which the DM had no plans to return. But this place was completely racially segregated. It was illegal, save for an elf, to be in the dwarf or human quarters of the city, vice versa and so forth. They all hated each other. So Annie made it her mission to teach these people to accept each other and stayed when the party left. 
Out of game, I was exploring other character concepts and we were fiddling with party composition. I ended up switching to a halfling beastmaster ranger who also quit adventuring when his snake companion fell to a cloud kill spell. We never really made it back around to cover what became of Annie. Phoenix on Discord says, The only character I have played in 5th edition was in an Adventurers League game when I was running a friendly local gaming store. A goblin archaeologist named Halliger Smith in the vein of Indiana Jones during the Tomb of Annihilation season. Taken from his home by a wizarding couple who raised him in the city as a social experiment, he became a professor of archaeology at the local university. His side job was going out and finding new and dangerous creatures for Volo to put in his books. No glory, but a lot of research. He never died because the friendly local gaming store had an influx of new players and I had to DM a new table. I'm running Adventurers League and I'm having lots of fun with the gnome necromancer, Hubar. It's lots of zombies and ghouls, but the party had a real mad on for him. I've had to expand his role in the module and it is glorious. Kath Memvar writes in on Discord and says, My first 5th edition character was shockingly not a cleric, but rather an evocation wizard named Lanthan, an incarnation of which I played during our 200th episode special. He was brought in primarily to help with finishing up Tyranny of Dragons, more on that later, but also was played in a one-shot that had an adventure going to the Elemental Plane of Fire. While there, he used the Grease spell exceptionally well, causing a number of fire snakes to be trapped in it and earning the nickname Lanthan the Greaser, Tormentor of the Fire Snakes. When in Tyranny of Dragons, he did a lot of unintentional friendly fire. The best example of this was when a couple of PCs got pulled into some dirty, muddy water by some baddies, and he decided to fire off chain lightning to hit all the baddies underwater. Unfortunately, this led to the entire pool of water being electrified. I'll let you all guess who the DM was, leading to one PC being knocked unconscious and the other heavily injured. Baddies were killed, though. Uh, the last time I dealt with the undead was an epic finale of our 5th edition campaign, which I mentioned in the general channel. To be brief, we got Orcus's wand, cleansed it to use it against him, and for the final battle, we brought in characters from several previous editions to fight Orcus, who was trying to change the flow of magic. We ultimately defeated him, but magic and even some aspects of reality itself were changed forever. TR Knight wrote in on Discord to say, My first experience with D&D 5th edition was in the D&D Next playtest back in 2011-2012. We did some playtest game nights where we alternated who DM'd and who played. My first 5th edition character was a human fighter pre-gen from the playlist. I still have an email note I shared with the group afterwards. What I enjoyed most is the rules quickly disappeared into the background. In 3.5, I constantly had to reference the books for various plus and minus modifiers, obscure rules, etc. These mechanics seemed much smoother and simpler. Combat had a great pace to it. I have played every version of D&D released since starting back in the 80s. As much as I still enjoy the first edition, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, and have the most fond memories of any edition, D&D 5th edition has become my go-to RPG, as it has the true feel of D&D, but with much smoother and story-focused gameplay. And Cold Planetar Shiv on Discord says, My first character was Skod Loon, a glamrock dwarf bard for an all-bards game. Lots of fun stories getting into d to 5th edition. Yeah, um, it is interesting Azeral's story for the undead that he was facing is very similar to a module from 3rd edition, I think? No, 2nd edition that... Um, involved Vecna. It had a very similar storyline. Hmm. So I hope you didn't just ruin something for him. <laughs> if he's as far along as he says he is, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Um, 
Tony, you weren't around when we asked this question, right? Nope. So what was your first 5th edition character? Uh, it was one of the pre-gens for the Minds of Fan Delver. Uh, I, took, I took the wizard. Um, he, uh, later on, because uh, Lennon was the uh, my DM for that game, and then uh, also a subsequent game, that guy became the uncle of the next guy that I played and still still play uh, frequently, uh, Aravan, uh, the, the, the paladin rogue that I like to play with all my games. Uh, so, okay, yeah, that, that first guy's still around in the background. Mm-hmm. So I'm also assuming the reason Gath electrocuted his companions was because somebody had a hat on? Maybe. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> it only makes sense, though. It means with dirty, muddy water, plenty of conductors in there. It's not the electricity's not going to stay put. Mm. I, I'm not saying that that was my thought process or anything. <laughs> I'm just saying it makes total sense. A lot more sense than <laughs> gravity on a spelljammer ship. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings us to this week's community questions. What are you most excited about from the announcements out of Wizards Presents? New Dragonlance adventure? Heists? Or are you biding your time for Planescape? And Spelljammer's here. I could not stop it. So what do you think? Do you share my and Tony's gripes about gravity, naming, and playing fast and loose with science? Or is this the return to wild space that you've been waiting for since 2nd edition? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 222nd entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 223rd entry on August 31st. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you, so take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy. And be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout to save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you live recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super-secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you. To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks so much for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage, Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal, Blood Lake Indigo Spectre, and Gath Memvar. I want to thank Leonard for letting me take his chair. And, of course, our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwen, and Tomosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Jadoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brew Hammer, The Sobby, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, Strife, Cordran, 
Daft Kronk, The Record, Spinning Economy, The Shadow, known only as Azeral, and That One Guy. Vin Svept, for all his awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vinsvept.bandcamp.com and Low of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's Lair and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. Someone untie me now. Uh, we're gonna have to cut that knot. It's really tight. I'm not doing it. Well, in this week's adventurers pack, we have a blank line. Uh. <laughs> With that, D and D also saw a surprising number of the fifth elf. That was disappointing. I know it was disappointing. And you don't suffer disadvantage on any of your attack rolls in zero gravity. Because you know in Darn it. I practiced this so many times. Because you know in Sasuke? I said that wrong still. Inya. Inya. Because you know Inya Wawala, Sasuke? You know Inya Wawala, Sasuke? Are you wanting me to say that? Inya is supposed to be inner. So like think of it like you're saying inner. Then it's Inya. Okay. Astral fishing, weightlessness, and two new maker, two new make spells, two new magic spells. Probably magic. You must probably have been drunk <laughs> or jet lagged. Or, yeah, possibly both. Yeah. It's your fault, Lennon. We're going to try to keep it spoiler free, but there's red dragon. Bleh, turn it. There's, there's, there are, there are red dragon riders. Hard, hard or soft G here, guys. What's the consensus? <laughs> Uh, I would say hard. Hoblin okay. archaeologist. <laughs> no, not. Uh. <laughs> All of our dissonant whisperers and our audio alchemists. Oh, no, nope, nope. No dissonant whisperers. Okay, well, it's in italics. I just was really going to stress that really hard. But okay. Penguins?